much, man. <laughs> no problem. Welcome back to When Bad Things Happen to Good People, a podcast about censorship and the arts. My name is Todd Sullivan, and my co-host is Oren Barter. Yo. And today we are starting our look at Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. things ah, not too bad yeah good to hear um i was a little i was a little hungover for work the day after we did that uh, bonus episode oh yeah which i just felt like a complete i was at work and my brain was foggy someone's like are you okay and i'm like no i'm hungover and they're like it's <laughs> thursday <laughs> like why yeah so. yeah so in case uh just so we you know people know what we're talking about we're recording this a couple of days later than we intended to. And on the day that we were going to originally record this, we got together and sort of had a bit of a chat that we recorded anyway, which will turn out into either a single bonus episode or uh, maybe a bunch of sort of like little mini or micro episodes if we sort of carve out the interesting bits that we talked about. But um, there will be probably some interesting, well, arguably interesting content showing up on Patreon in the next few weeks from that conversation. So um, keep your eyes out for that. That'll be, that'll be fun and exciting. But here we are um, after, uh, this is our 11th episode. So we've made it 10 episodes. We've covered two books. No, one book. One book, <laughs> one book two, two movies. Two movies. Yeah. And we're about to start our second book. So this is exciting. Um, and I'm, I'm excited to dig into this book. And because it's going to be our first time talking about it i think we have more material to cover than usual so we should probably dig right into it unless there's anything uh you wanted to talk about in advance let's take a big old bite out of this okay so before we talk about what we've read so far um i did take some information from wikipedia because wikipedia is is a brilliant source of information i know a lot of people say you can't trust wikipedia because people can edit it but 99% of the time, the information there is, in fact, accurate. And it's also, you can tell it's accurate because most of it is cited. You know, there there are sources provided and links to sources for, like, literally everything on Wikipedia. So here's what Wikipedia has to say about The Handmaid's Tale. The Handmaid's Tale is a dystopian novel by Canadian author Margaret Atwood, published in 1985. It is set in a near-future New England in a totalitarian state known as Gilead that has overthrown the United States government. The Handmaid's Tale explores themes of subjugated women in a patriarchal society and the various means by which these women resist and attempt to gain individuality and independence. The Handmaid's Tale won the 1985 Governor General's Award and the first Arthur C. Clarke Award in 1987. It was also nominated for the 1986 Nebula Award, the 1986 Booker Prize, and the 1987 Prometheus Award. The book has been adapted into a 1990 film, a 2000 opera, a 2017 television series, and other media. So this is not uh, an insignificant piece of fiction. This is a book that has gotten a lot of attention, gotten a lot of awards, uh, and is quite well regarded. It was also the 29th most banned or challenged book from 2010 to 2019. So... 
there are people who are not fond of this book. Now, I've also got some information on some of those challenges so we can get a sense of why why this book has been has been challenged or banned in the past so here's so, so here's like a list. It, so you got a list that like shows where when and why yeah the the wikipedia page for the handmaid's tale uh includes a few selected examples of where and when it's been challenged i'm just going to okay. run through some of those sure um, in 1990, it was challenged at Rancho Cotate High School in California as being too explicit for students. Okay. Uh, in, in 1992, it was challenged in schools in Waterloo, Iowa, reportedly because of profanity, lurid passages about sex, and statements defamatory to minorities, God, women, and the disabled. In 1993, <laughs> it was removed because of profanity and sex from the Chicopee, Massachusetts High School English class reading list. 1998, challenged for use in Richland, Washington high school English classes, along with six other titles determined to be poor quality literature, and that stressed suicide, illicit sex, violence, and hopelessness. 1999, challenged because of graphic sex, but retained on the advanced placement English list at George D. Chamberlain High School in Tampa, Florida. In 2000, it was downgraded from required to optional on the summer reading list for 11th graders in the Upper Moorland School District near Philadelphia due to an age-inappropriate subject matter. 2001, uh, challenged but retained in the Dripping Springs, Texas. That's a troubling name. <laughs> Dripping, to Dripping Springs. Springs, Texas. Senior advancement placement English course is being optional reading assignment. Some parents were offended by the book's descriptions of sexual encounters. Although I would argue that if you're in the advanced placement English class, you should be able to tackle subjects like that. Um, yeah, but I mean, that's advanced English. It's not advanced emotional maturity. I guess. And in 2012, it was challenged as required reading for a Page High School International Baccalaureate class and as optional reading for advanced placement reading courses at Grimsley High School in Greensboro, North Carolina, because the book is sexually explicit, violently graphic, and morally corrupt. Uh, and some parents thought the book is detrimental to Christian values. So, mm -hmm. that's a little bit about what we're in for here. Yeah, I... Even in a little bit that we've done so far, I think that it would be a stretch to say that this is a high school book. I don't know if you agree with that or not, but I mean, if I had a kid and they were in high school, I don't know if I'd feel comfortable. Mm. Oh, no, I totally would. Yeah? Okay. Yeah. yeah. But see, when you say, I might agree with you that it's not a high school book in the sense that I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect most high school curriculums to include a book like this. Yeah. Okay. That's kind of, yeah. but that doesn't mean I don't think that it, it should be, or it could be. Mm -hmm. um, but I think I would personally reserve judgment on how appropriate this is for high schools until I'd read the whole thing, because I'm also of the opinion that, you know, how in, um, in films, if you have a film in the U.S. that's rated PG-13, you're allowed to say fuck once in the film. I don't think that whether or not something is appropriate for a certain age group has anything to do with counting the number of fucks or, you know, like just really mechanical things. Like it's about the context of everything in the entirety of the book. Okay. So, you know, just because, you know, for example, we have already encountered the word fuck in this book um, during a not entirely G-rated scene. 
Um, but I don't know if I would say that that scene automatically means that this film or that this book shouldn't be for high school students. I, I would need to judge that against sort of the whole book entirely. Is my take. Okay. Okay. But, I mean, that is clearly um, the argument that a lot of people are giving. That, you know, the, the sexual content, um, violent content, apparently, which I don't think we've really encountered so far. And... There's a bit of, well, maybe maybe not violent, but morbid. That we've, we've, somewhat, yeah. yeah. Uh, and there there is what I would say already um, a certain amount of anti-religious sentiment. Yeah, oh yeah. yeah big oh, oh, hey. What are you hey, drinking? Hey, how's it going? What are you drinking, Todd? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, <laughs> I heard you take uh, a sip I, and I was like, I don't yeah. know what he's drinking over there. I have a, a Canadian club rye and ginger going right now. Oh, okay. I've yeah. got I've got uh, partake stout non-alcoholic stout hmm, nice. beer. Yeah. Good. It's actually really good. Yeah, I think I've had this before on the show. Oh, cool. People have to like, but maybe someone out there can start keeping count of <laughs> what drinks we have when, or maybe we should include maybe the, we should, uh, yeah. the episode descriptions. That would be fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, so one thing that's very much different about this book compared to the autobiography of Malcolm X is that the chapters are much, much shorter. Mm. Um, we covered 17 chapters over the course of this. And I think we read like two thirds as much. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, another thing is that so far in these 17 chapters, which equal about a hundred pages, not very much has happened as far as stuff in the primary narrative. Basically, um, this woman who's a handmaid, she goes to the store to get some food. She comes home. Uh, another time she's at the store, comes home, goes to her room. Another time she like, eat some food, goes to a prayer meeting, and then has sex. Well, no, she went to the doctor, and the doctor hit on her. Oh, the doctor. I forgot about the doctor. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, that's pretty much everything that's happened in, in 17 chapters, if you look <laughs> just at the details of what happened. But, I mean, it does bounce around a lot. It does bounce it is, around a lot. It is it sometimes does... hard to tell, like, what timeline you're on. You're reading one section, you're like, okay, well, this is going on. And then, all of a sudden, it's like, whoa, 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 that doesn't seem right. What, you're in a car? You got a baby yeah. in the back? What? And that's, that is, I, I'm, I'm sure that's very intentional. Well, yeah. Uh, to keep you kind of, not in suspense, but in kind of confusion, you know, th- about the order of things. Because there are clearly multiple, so the, like the, like it said in the, at the beginning, this is a dystopian world where the the, the government I think, along with religious leaders, have steered society towards a more, quote-unquote, traditional um, kind of family unit society where women are expected to stay at home, um, men are men, men, women are breeders, unless they can't breed, in which case, you know, you get a handmaid. But we do spend time in the world before this as well. 
Or, or as uh, she likes to say a million times in this book, the before time. The before times. The before times. Um, yeah. yeah. And for me, I kind of... The very first chapter is called Night. It's a very short chapter. And it basically describes these 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 handmaids. Um, they're sleeping in a gymnasium of a former school. We kind of later find out that this location is where they're they're kind of trained for handmade service. Um, and they they go to the different classrooms to learn different things. They sleep in the gymnasium. Um, they're all sort of set uh, far enough apart that they can't really effectively whisper to each other without sort of the guards or the the teachers or whatever hearing them but they do describe being able to sort of reach out to each other and and hold each other's hands in the darkness to to sort of give each other strength and in my mind i look at that as the center uh timeline point uh her training and then we either move forward or backward from there into these different periods but it's really it's, not that big of a stretch. Like, it's only a few years between yeah. the before times and the current timeline. Yeah, and it will be interesting to see whether or not they they go into any kind of real specific detail about how that shift happened, because it is clearly a very dramatic shift. We get, we get to this point where you know a woman is essentially owned by a man for the purposes of making a baby for the family. And and she's already been to another place. Like this is her yes. second place. Yeah. So. Um, and it's worth noting that um, we don't know her name. I don't think in the context of the story, it comes up uh, in Margaret Atwood's introduction, um, but I don't think she's been actually named. But her name is of Fred, and oh, isn't it off off Fred? So I. I originally read it as Offred, mm-hmm. but later in the book, when she encounters other women and we find out what their names are, it becomes clear what the naming system is. So we oh, encounter women who are named is the commander's Warren. name Fred then? That would be his first name. Yeah. So and oh, their okay. names are titles essentially of, of ownership. Right. So she's not a person. She's just a person. She's a possession. She's of Fred's, Fred. yeah. you know, baby okay. maker. Right. And and when I hit that point in the book where I encountered the other women's names and realized what it meant and what that meant for of Fred, my I like I felt my stomach drop because it was like I knew it probably the name was going to mean something at some point because Offred is not it doesn't sound like a normal name. And I know in the introduction Margaret Atwood talked about how it was also kind of a play on the idea of offered. Mm-hmm. Um and so I, when I read it in the introduction, I didn't make that connection. But then, yeah, it's it's definitely a, a, about possession. We start to actually visit the world in part two, which is called Shopping. And that contains chapters two through six. And that's, as I said, that's the point where she basically, um, she goes to the kitchen. She gets the, the little uh, tokens or whatever that she needs to acquire food goes out to get food, um, meets up with another woman because they have to travel in pairs, I guess, so that if anyone does anything wrong, um, the other one is there to snitch on the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they go and they get their food and then they come back. And that's sort of the gist of what actually happens. But throughout all this, there is a lot of world building. 
um, a lot of world building. Um, there's a, a description of her room right at the beginning of, of this chapter talking about all of the things that it doesn't have in the context of like this, the absence of these things makes this space more difficult for someone to kill themselves in this room. Right. Yeah. There's no mirrors, the shattered glass that can be broken. Yeah. Yeah. And again, that, that tells you so much about the state of the world and what would be going on potentially in the minds of these handmaids. They have to make the room impossible, well, not impossible, but very difficult to kill yourself in because very clearly that's something that these women try or did try on a regular basis. Right. But I, like, I just, I get hung up a little bit on like, yeah, the, she's building this world and it seems very entrenched and all these, all these rules and, and systems and the places seem very entrenched. But I mean, like I said, it's only been three years. She says that when she lost her child or she considers her child dead because it's easier that way. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but when she thinks about how old her daughter would be, she would be eight. And I'm like, Oh, well that's, you know, that's not a whole lot of time for all of this to become so entrenched and all these rules and all these teachings and, I just like. I'm well, that is hope. why I'm curious to see if they will get to a point of explaining more in detail. I'm guessing probably not, as I feel like that is sort of secondary to the story itself. Um, but I am curious, and I, I didn't catch that about the child's age. That's a good point because I, I've felt like the amount of time that has passed is very gray mm-hmm. in in my experience of the book, and I probably missed that reference to the child's age that would have been more solidified about the time that's passed. See, and I know like we talked about this before, but I'll mention it a little bit. I, I, I am enjoying the book more now that I'm as far into it as I am. But when I first started it, I really didn't like the, the details. The details were contradicting themselves quite a bit. Yeah. And you know, like she kind of, she wants to create this dystopian future where everything's different but then she also wants it to be very close to the to the past and i feel like those things conflict with each other um and i i know that uh you kind of explained it a little bit better to me but i found when she first describes her outfit and how she's not supposed to see anything and how she's got these great big blinders on and then she starts describing everything in such great detail as she's walking through it and it's you know it's like well can she see or not? Right. Like, where is this? But you're like, well, you know, she's, well, I think, yeah, the, yeah. the veil isn't meant to block her vision. It's the, the wings on the side that sort of give her that tunnel vision of only looking directly ahead. Right. Yeah. But even then, like she can turn her head left and right. And so she is able to see things. It's just, but she and, does. And, yeah. But she does say like a couple of times, like I, I can't see because of my wings or my veil. And it's like, well, I, I found a like, I found it contradicting itself quite a bit i mean it might be i think it's just a question of like i was more inclined to just immerse myself in the world and in the story uh rather than getting hung up on things like that um yeah and (laughs) yeah and it's just it's it's either like a a, a different way of reading a different way of experiencing the text or like early on you maybe just hit that one thing that made you question everything that came after it yeah i think that's what happened i think it uh something 
I think it was the veil thing or the wing thing and it popped out at me and I think I've been a little over overly analytical. Now that I'm through to chapter 17, uh, I, I am really starting to enjoy this book. So Good, good, good. But it might be it might be a little hard to get into it first if you're going to try and read it. And you're as anal as I am. Yeah, because I was going to say I had I had zero difficulty. I was enjoying it like almost from, well, I, st- I stumbled a little bit through the first chapter because it is, again, it's it's so unclear what's going on there initially that, um, mm-hmm. but like right away in chapter two, just the way, and it world builds the way I like sign sort of science fiction or speculative fiction to world build, like to drop you right in the middle of it and start telling you things without necessarily explaining them because a person in this world wouldn't do like, so in, in a, in a little bit here, we're going to encounter a Martha. So woman named Rita, who is what's called a Martha. Now, in a lot of bad writing, the story would at that point go, oh, maybe you haven't heard of Martha's before, so let me tell you what they are. Mm-hmm. But that's not what happens here. We're just told that she's a Martha, and we're kind of left to figure out by the context cues of what she's doing what a Martha is, which is they seem to be a, kind of a kitchen servant. Um and the Marthas wear green, where the handmaids wear red. And I did have this note down, wondering whether or not, like, I don't know, I don't know the history of Martha Stewart, <laughs> whether or not she would have been enough of a thing in like 1985 when this was written for that to be the inspiration of the term Martha. But that's that is kind of my headcanon as I read this. That every time I encounter a Martha, it's like that's someone who's doing Martha Stewart type work. Um, another fact that comes up. In this in this chapter two about the world is that uh, people like time at least for the handmaids is all measured according to bells. When a bell goes off, it's time to do this. When a bell goes off, it's time to do that. And that struck me as really interesting as well because that takes so much autonomy away from a person mm-hmm. that they're not they're not looking at their watch and going, "Oh, I need to go and do this thing." They're being told by a particular chime, now it's time to go. Um, They don't even really know what time it is. All they know is it's time to engage in a particular action. Uh, And that, even just that small detail, seemed very uh, dystopic to me. We also get a reference here um, to something called the colonies and people called unwomen. Uh, And this was brought up as a potentially threatening thing, that if you didn't um, if you didn't behave properly, you might end up being sent to the colonies to live with the unwomen. And I don't know what the unwomen would be. And again, so far, my headcanon is that the colonies is maybe Canada. But yeah. that's just... No, there was something about trade with Canada, if I remember right. But I might not be remembering right. Yeah, I don't recall. I don't know if I agree. I mean, I, I'm. hopefully we'll find out. Yeah, I feel like that's something that will probably come up. I feel like she'll probably end up having to be, you know, sent to the colonies or deal with the young women at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, once she has her tokens for groceries, um, she leaves the house. We're introduced to um, the the large garden, which is sort of uh, the domain of the commander's wife. The commander being um, the man of the house she's in. I got the sense that there are sort of multiple commanders not that like there's like one the commander that essentially yeah. he's just a commander. Yeah. I don't know whether that's like just a general male title, like every man of a certain stature 
is considered a commander because it does mention, um, and I think it first comes up in this chapter here, um, this idea of of hierarchy among males where not all males get are wives. able to yeah. get wives um, when she interacts with uh, Nick, who is cleaning one of uh, the commander's cars. They mentioned that um, he is apparently of low status because he hasn't been issued a woman, which again, I thought was a great dystopic phrasing. Women are issued to men, um, not, you know, not of their own free will. Uh, what else do we learn about? Uh, we learn about guardians. Um, and I think we find out later that guardians are kind of like low level police, but they also do kind of like yard work, yard work. Yeah. They kind they of just do whatever. Do the heavy digging in the yard. Yeah. Yeah. I think they also mentioned, I, did they meant, ah, I'm trying to remember, was it something like they, they were either too young or too old to be what they called angels and angels were, were soldiers. Right. Yeah, angels were sort of like the the next level up from the guardians. Yeah, I think guardians were like she. I think at one point she said they're either all you know too old to be angels or or just starting up. Really yeah, it does young. say they're usually yeah. old or disabled or very young, um, but also that some guardians are what are called eyes, which right. uh, you know are su- most likely some kind of a spy looking for sort of specific infractions. Well, and and guard like guardians can be eyes. Uh, handmaids can be eyes, like anybody can be eyes. When I first read sort of that interaction when um, Alfred first meets Nick, I was, my first thought was like, these guys are going to hook up. Mm-hmm. And there is a, an interaction with them towards the end of these chapters that I think seems to make that likelihood even stronger. Um, but we'll get to that when we get to that. But she kind of like... You kind of get that feeling like she just wants to hook up with anybody at this point. Like, not saying like she's just like free and open um, for everybody, but like she's, she's like, that's a little bit of her freedom. That's a little bit of her. She can have these desires. She can't act on them, but she can have them. And, yeah. you know, like there was, there was the one where she was walking to the store or walking. Yeah, well, town I, I was going to get to that. that. That's guardian. a good point. The, yeah. the, the guardians. Yeah. Um, let's get to that because i think we're almost there but i do want to quickly mention that um we get this flashback of of fred watching um an old religious program featuring a woman named serena joy um and it's revealed through that flashback that the commander's wife is this old religious person named serena joy Mm -hmm. and the fact that she's mentioned by name in this historical context makes me think that she will be much more significant to the story, but maybe to the history as well. Like I feel like Serena joy and her religious movement may have been, um, a big part of this change. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. That's what I thought too. Like, and especially in the flashback when she was talking about the sort of things that Serena was, um, what's the word I'm looking for? She was, uh, you know, not picketing cause she wasn't God damn, my brain is not functioning. Uh, protesting she wasn't protesting like she was rallying for these things oh, yeah, she was yeah. talking about how women should be women right yeah. how they should be at home and then it kind of goes back to the present and it's going to be weird to say this but you're totally right on the name of fred yeah because i've been reading it as off <laughs> i was too at first yeah yeah um 
And she kind of like takes a stab at Serena, like, I bet you don't like that too much now. Like not at her, at her, but in her own head at her Mm -hmm. kind of a thing. Right. So, but yeah, no, I I thought the same thing. That was probably part of whatever made this big change. Right. So I, yeah. And I do think that because of that, and because she's sort of a a big character too of Fred, we are going to see at least some of how that transition happened and what Serena Joy may have had to do with creating this brave new world. Um, and I think it's, it's not really like a, like she's it's, it's the world because she's in it. And I think she, she does like kind of bring that up. Like this is the norm for us. And it's not like this is all of the United States or North America or, you know, the world. Like there's, no, they're fighting. And there are references yeah. to fights and and a war, and because the um, the angels are on the front lines of something. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that's a good point. Um, it is at least in sort of the New England area, um, but how? Yeah, fair point. Um, so Alfred kind of hooks up with, or um, you know, meets up with another handmade so they can continue into town for their shopping together, as I said, so they can kind of keep an eye on each other as they, as they walk, um, we get references to a bunch of sort of in world things that I don't know what they are, but I wrote them down because the, the names were interesting. Salvagings, Pravaganzas, Birthmobiles, and then uh, black vans with winged eyes that, Nobody knew, like, winged eyes were painted on the side of them, but that nobody knew what went on in them. And, like, people were terrified to, like, even kind of, you know, approach or encounter them. Um, Especially, like, the word pray-vaganza. It sounds like a big, like, pray celebration party. (laughs) Yeah, that that makes sense. It's likely it, yeah. Yeah. as they're passing through their their um, their IDs and stuff are being checked by the guardians, we learn that guardians are promoted to angels eventually, are perhaps allowed to marry, and then might, might even live long enough to receive their own handmaid, should they be lucky enough. Um, and then we also find out that the guardians are too young to be allowed to have sex, mm-hmm. and masturbation is forbidden. And it's it's this moment, I think you were talking about, where... You know, she's kind of like really enjoying walking past them in as seductive a way as is possible in her clothing, you know, maybe giving a little extra wiggle to torment them because that is a certain amount of power power and freedom that she can still cling to as long as hopefully I would think, you know, you wouldn't want to let an eye get uh, a sense of that. Mm hmm. But see, this is one of those places where I get hung up because she's talking about, you know, how, you know, they hope like they might live long enough to get their own wives and this and that. It almost seems like this has gone on for at least a couple of generations, but it's only been a few years. How does she know that he's going to eventually get his own? Because that's, I would imagine, because that's in, in the laws that they wrote, that there is this hierarchy of men that you're the guardian Oh, okay. Eventually you become an angel. Once you're an angel, then you can wed. If you work long enough as an angel, you become a commander, and then you beca- you can get a hand. Oh, okay. Like it's it's okay. very simple to create so, that so, kind of a hierarchy, right? Right. But then who who selected the commanders, angels, guardians? 
Like, who had to start there? I mean, I mean yes. I mean, obviously, this commander started at a com- as a commander. Right? Most commanders, I'm sure, started as commanders. Nobody would intentionally, like, drop to the bottom of the bucket. Um, I don't know. But, I mean, if I had to guess, you know, it, it probably had something to do with your station out of, like original society right like if you if you worked at a gas station you're going to be a guardian right if you were a, a high-paid criminal lawyer you might have been a commander you know like it, it really okay. it's just a different sort of economic hierarchy to what we already have okay i'm guessing okay no I, guess. I can buy that i can buy that you're, you're, you're slowly swinging me argument by <laughs> argument as they continue to walk to the stores we we find out about a guy named luke um, mm-hmm. she remembers that Luke and her used to walk together. Um, context clues from future scenes. Luke seems to have been uh, a boyfriend that, um, was married to somebody else. Uh, and he had an affair on his wife with, of Fred. And then likely got her pregnant and then they were starting a family or whatever. And mm-hmm. in a way, Again, knowing the kind of um, patriarchal and puritanical society that it seems that they've built now, it's not surprising that they would have, you know, looked down on someone like of Fred, who was responsible for breaking up a marriage and who maybe had a child out of wedlock and, and things like that. We don't know too many details about what happened to them in the like the final days. We've had bits of it, but we'll get to that in a little bit. And there was this interesting bit in this section talking about how in the past, when women had more freedom, they were not protected. And there's this line, and I can't remember who said it, uh, probably um, Aunt, was it Aunt Lydia is the woman who was doing the, mm-hmm. yeah, Aunt yeah. Lydia is the one who was training her. Um, this line that in the days of anarchy, which is sort of before, it was freedom to, meaning yeah. freedom to, you know, go and have sex with whoever you wanted to, freedom to drive a car, freedom to get a job as a woman. Now you are being given freedom from, which is to say freedom from being raped, freedom from uh, having to look over your shoulder um, when you're walking down a dark alleyway. But that, and okay. this is presented as a positive thing. Mm-hmm. And it's basically legislating, you know, victim blaming, right? It's all the times you were raped before, it was really your fault. Yeah. And yeah, they had that one, that one girl in the training where they were supposed to talk about maybe things that had happened to them Yeah, in the time before. Um, and yeah, she talks about that and, Everybody shames her, like, like who who led them on? You did, you did, right? Well, it was it would be I did, I did, because they had oh, to right. own it up to themselves, right? Right. And now they, um, on their walk, they encounter a group of tourists, uh, apparently from Japan. Mm-hmm. And this is a bit that I wanted to read directly from the book. They look around, bright-eyed, cocking their heads to one side like robins, their very cheerfulness aggressive, and I can't help staring. It's been a long time since I've seen skirts that short that short on women. 
The skirts reach just below the knee, and the legs come out from beneath them, nearly naked in their thin stockings, blatant, the high-heeled shoes with their straps attached to the feet like delicate instruments of torture. The women teeter on their spiked feet as if on stilts, but off balance. Their backs arch at the waist, thrusting the buttocks out. Their heads are uncovered and their hair too exposed in all its darkness and sexuality. They wear lipstick, red, outlining the damp cavities of their mouths, the scrawls on a washroom wall of the time before. I think what's really interesting about that is it's it's written as if it's a very, very sort of sexual outfit. But let's stop and remember that at the very beginning of that description, we're talking about a skirt that's below the knee, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, really, she's just encountering someone who's dressed in what would be considered, I, I think, pretty conventional. Um, but it's being described as this insanely over-the-top kind of sexual outfit. Well, in comparison to the outfit that uh, all the other women wear, well, exactly. And it I, but is, I think right? yeah. that's that's my point is that I think it's, again, that's another moment to show how much society has changed and how much people's perspectives of clothing and, and appearance in this world uh, has changed. And then um, they get to the wall where they encounter men uh, hanging from the neck dead this got is that morbid part i was talking about yeah. yeah um and the doctors or sorry the, the men had had different sort of signs on them i guess and some of them had i think signs that had babies on them or fetuses mm-hmm. and basically these were these were men who had formerly been doctors who had given abortions not now but in the before time so these guys are being punished after the fact for things that were legal at the time, um, which again is a good example of what's happened to this world. Right. But why did the birth rates decline so much? Like why is a birth such a rare thing? That I don't know. That's, that's something I think we're going to find out as it, as it goes along. Okay. I think part of it is if you look at, the hierarchy. Yeah, who's allowed to have kids? They're, they're older. Who's allowed then. to have kids? Yeah. By the time they're having kids, you know, you've got like their sperm counts are down. Yeah. The women, um, you know, can't always successfully have kids when they're, you know, I mean, once you're getting close to forty, it can be dangerous to have kids. Yeah. And it doesn't always work. Um, so they've created a society. And then, and then in a on, sense. yeah, and then on top of that, um, you know, even if the man has a decent sperm count and he's got a handmaiden, they're only having sex once a month. Right, but they are. I mean, that's intentionally timed too. Right? Yeah, it's that's intentionally timed, but it's yeah, but it's still just yeah. I mean, yeah, I see what you mean with the with the handmaid at least. I imagine they're probably having sex more often with the wife, maybe, but who knows? Yeah. And then that's the end of part two. Part three, which is also called Night. Because uh, why not? Let's just do, let's seven. just do Night again. Well, so is it going to be like? Yeah, it's going to be like morning. Basically, the way the book is is broken up, and I, I can't remember if I read this on Wikipedia or somewhere else, but it's basically you have, you know, part one is night, 
Yeah. And it's about of Fred essentially alone her alone experience in that uh in that gymnasium. And then you have shopping, which are you know chapters two through six. And then you have Night Again, which again is of Fred sort of by herself, isolated in her room. And it bounces back and forth like that from, mm-hmm. you know, a period where of Fred is out interacting with the world and then where she's isolated and then out interacting with the world and then isolated. So like the nice, next isolated one is Nap, which contains chapter 13. It's not Night, okay. but again, it's a similar thing. She's back in a room, she's isolated and, and, and going through that experience. Um, in chapter seven, we learn a couple more things about the past. Um, she went to university with a girl named Moira. Um, and we have a scene where they think about going out for some drinks. Um, without context, it's hard to really place this in time, but I suspect I got the feeling that when she was with um, Luke, it was after university. So yeah, I feel like I would, Moira yeah. is earlier. I, I thought so too, yeah. Then we have uh, a memory of her, even younger than that, going uh, out with her mother to uh, kind of a, a, a riot, or a, not a riot, but like a, a, book burning. a protest where they're burning porn magazines. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another flash of her waking up somewhere after having her child been taken, uh, because apparently she's unfit to have one. I think this is the first reference we get to her ever even having a child. And now we move on to part four, Waiting Room, uh, which covers chapter eight to 12. Uh, and again, we start kind of with Alfred and her companion, uh, Handmaid, heading to town again. They're they're about to get some more groceries. Along the way, they encounter a funeral procession involving a mother and what seems to likely be her dead fetus. Um, they, they wonder and hope that it wasn't an unbaby, which... Again, that's one of those sort of names that come up that stand out as being a new thing. I don't know what it would refer to, mm-hmm. um, but I'm curious to find out. They get to the the shops. They get their food. Um, the next note I have is uh, her back at her her uh, at the commander's house, going to her room and encountering the commander outside of it, which is not yeah, which was which like, is not normal yeah. Um, but then he just leaves. There's no conversation among them. And so it's this question of why was he here? Was he searching my room? Was he looking for something? What is going on? It's also important, I guess, that this is the first time, because she talks about how the room isn't her room. It's just the room that in her mind, it's a separate thing. It's, it's, she doesn't want to get attached to it. But when she encounters the commander outside of it, in her mind for the first time, it was her room. He was outside her room. He was potentially violating her space. And uh, and she makes a note of that herself inside of her own mind, is that, you know, for the first time, it was her room. I also liked how, how the room was different things for her. Like, when she was waiting, it was the waiting room, right? Like, when it was when she was going to sleep, it was her bed, mm-hmm. the bedroom. Like, mm-hmm. Reminded me of the, of the rugs in uh, Malcolm X. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, and she even, um, like she talks a little bit in this, in these chapters about going through and searching the different areas of her room, looking for something, some evidence of the, the previous occupant and how she sort of, in order to kind of maximize the experience, 
broke the room up into sections in order to do that, not search the whole room at once and like really focus on this one area. And, and in doing that, she ended up coming across some words carved into um, a door frame, I think. I thought it was in like her wardrobe or something. Maybe it was, it was in wood, obviously. Um, do you have, yeah. Do you have a, I do have the words. It's Nolite to Bastardes Carborundorum, which I totally meant to look up, but didn't. (laughs) So I'm going to do it right now. Okay. Um, I don't know if we're supposed to do this. This book was obviously published before the existence of Google. And so readers either had to... Go get uh, uh, either know guy. it or go yeah. learn Latin or whatever to figure it out. Uh, uh, uh. Oh, oh! Apparently, some women have it tattooed on them. Oh, really? Yeah. What does it mean? Okay, it's a made-up phrase in mock Latin. A schoolboy's joke, as it's explained in both the novel and the series. If it were a real phrase, it would roughly translate to don't <laughs> don't let the bastards grind you down. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, there's a whole article on the the history of it at Vanity Fair if you want to go read that. So um, from there, she's off to see the doctor who is there to sort of, I guess, check to see how... Um, fertile she is at that moment you know that you know there are times of the old female cycle that are are better for getting knocked up and so the doctor is checking for that so they can have their their monthly um seed injection let's say (laughs) or as it's Um, lovingly referred to in the book the fucking fucking. Yeah. yeah And of course, while she is at the doctor's office, um, the doctor who is super helpful decides to offer, um, he'll knock her up. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, If you're, if you're worried uh, about, you know, maybe the commander's ability to, you know, plant that old seed, I'll take care of it for you. If you want, uh, she politely declines in part. And, 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 when I say politely declines, that's actually not a joke. She's very, she has to be very careful about how she navigates this because um, if she pisses off the doctor, of course, he can now fuck up her life. Yeah, he could like change the charts and say, like, she will never bear a child. She is. Yep. And then I think this is when, is this when the unwomen is brought up? It might be brought up again. I mean, the first okay. time was earlier when in relation to um, the colonies. Right. But yeah, I think she she mentioned that like if she was of no value, she'd become an unwoman. She'd become an unwoman, I think. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and at the other hand, you know, if she takes the doctor up on his offer and the commander finds out about it, that's probably like the end for her as well, because mm-hmm. the whole point of the handmaid is to is to get the you know her, her man's the one that she is of in this case Fred mm-hmm. um to get his baby going so even though being knocked up by the doctor if you're not caught it would at least hopefully convince Fred that you know you you're knocked up with his child but got to watch the color of the eyes there sometimes 
Um, and then she's back to her room. Uh, or no, she goes to take a bath. Um, she has more memories about her child. She has dinner. Uh, and then I, I remember when I was reading this going, oh, God, why is she doing this? What is this for? After dinner, she she sets aside like half of her butter packet mm-hmm. in her shoe. And I was like, oh, God, what is this about? I'll tell you right now, I was expecting that it was going to be used as, as lubricant. Yeah, that's what I to. thought, too. Yeah. yeah. I thought, this like, is, yeah, she was like so not into it that. Yeah, and I also sort of got the feeling that, like, the commander, anyone who is, like, running around calling themselves the commander probably isn't caring a whole lot about, you know, the sexual experience of their mate and probably isn't going to be too concerned about making sure that they're properly ready, mm-hmm. adequately prepared. Um, and so I had this picture in my head of her, like, having to, like, sneak the butter up into herself Um but thankfully, this is one of the rare times that the book was kinder than I was expecting it to be. <laughs> <laughs> so that was that was nice. Um, yeah, she she used it for moisturizer. Yeah, well, she used it. Yeah, as a skin yeah. moisturizer later. Um, there's a there's a a nice bit about how like you know it'll go rancid and you know she'll end up smelling like cheese, but at least it's natural kind of a thing. Which it's, it's interesting because I think. Again, it shows that kind of of kind of really difficult position that women in this world are put in, and I think again, it's a very reasonable thought as far as like if men were building a world for them and for what they thought might be good for women, they wouldn't necessarily consider these sorts of things. Like she's got to make sure that her skin remains soft because otherwise the commander probably isn't going to want to touch her. No, no. So she actually said that it, it has absolutely like her face and her looks. It doesn't matter. She's just there as a, as, as a, a vessel to produce a child. That's, that's her position as a handmaid. In theory. Yes. Okay. But like, you don't, don't you think that like the, the commander is going to prefer a woman with softer skin, a woman who doesn't have, you know, dry flaky skin or creases under her eyes or things like that. Like, but he doesn't even, he didn't even see her face when they were, mm, when they perhaps. were, when they were doing the thing. And she does mention the reason that she does that is because if it doesn't work out, then at least she still has her looks, right? Or something like that. Let me, let me find that. Yeah, she rubs the butter on her face and her hands. Um, Such things are considered vanities. We are containers. It's only the insides of our bodies that are important. Mm -hmm. The outside can become hard and wrinkled for all they care, like a shell of a nut. This was a decree of the wives. Okay, I can see, because this is like the wives want them to not look attractive. Mm -hmm. She says things are bad enough as it is. Then she also says, um, as long as we do this, butter our skin to keep it soft, we can believe that we will someday get out, that we will be touched again in love or desire. Yeah, okay, fair. Yeah. So it does seem like it's more of something that she does for herself. And much like, you know, maybe 
those moments walking seductively near the guardians. This is sort of one of those private moments where she's able to still retain some Mm -hmm. kind of freedom and autonomy and do something for herself. There's also in this buttering scene, she has one thing I will give her some great analogies um, and and similes. Similes? Yeah, that's when you're like, this thing's like this thing. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. (laughs) But this one I thought was actually kind of funny. Buttered, I lie on my single bed flat like a piece of toast. (laughs) (laughs) Nice, yeah. Um, And I will say, yeah, no, I'm really digging the the language of this. It's... um, I, I sometimes like really simply written books. Mm-hmm. Um, when language gets too flowery for me, uh, I can kind of get bored of it. Um, but when you're able to tell and paint a picture really, really simply, um, I think that's particularly captivating. And I think um, Margaret Atwood does a really great job of doing that here. Um, so all the stuff that was happening just a moment ago with like taking the bath and, and eating dinner... That's all in preparation for uh, meeting the commander and and having another you know attempt at laying planting seed. Um, the next section, um, part five, nap contains chapter thirteen, and this is sort of her killing time before that moment. So she kind of has a nap and kind of dreams, kind of remembers things. Uh, we have more memories of Moira, the, but now Moira is arriving um, at the the school for handmaids. Um, they kind of start sneaking off into the bathroom to like whisper at each other through this hole in the wall. Um, a glory hole. He said, "Well, I got maybe I got the sense that it was <laughs> kind like of on a, the ground, but maybe you know. okay, or like a peeping hole or something." Yeah. Um, and that's probably what it was because you know this would have been a school at one point, so it wouldn't surprise me if the the boys had like you know chipped a hole through the the bathroom wall to be able to peer in on the girl's room. Um, then memories of uh, her and Luke in an empty house and getting angry phone calls from Luke's F, uh, Luke's wife. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another memory of her running away with her child, running through the woods uh, and then sort of falling and having that child taken away from her. Uh, and then we get to part six household Contains chapters 14 through 17. A bell rings. Of course, it's always a bell. Uh, and the household goes to gather in the sitting room. Everyone's waiting for the commander. They make him, uh, I think actually the wife makes a point of the fact that he's always late. Everyone has to sit around and wait. Um, of Fred has a moment uh, remembering, you know, traveling in the car. Uh, with Luke and with um, the little girl trying to uh, get away. Um, and it seemed like trying to get away from the world that she's now stuck in. Yes. Yeah. You know, they talk about things like faked passports or faked um, documents. Um, and again, just sort of dropping those little hints of detail about what's going on. Um we don't know exactly what it is that they're trying to get away from at this point, but it's likely, you know, is in relation to things like I mentioned before, like, you know, childhood of wedlock, um, having broken up a marriage, things like that. Because again, like if they're hanging doctors who performed abortions in the time before, mm-hmm. what are they going to do to like this homewrecker woman 
who destroyed a perfectly good marriage and also, you know, got pregnant out of wedlock. So, um, Commander arrives. Um, he, he reads a, a Bible passage. Um, and I, I get the sense that it's always the same one, always this one about, I'm not good with Bible passages, but it's about like this, this woman who was unable to get pregnant and basically says to her husband, uh, take my, my sister or my servant, whatever it is. Her maid. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's where um, the handmaid came from. Exactly. That's where this whole idea of if your if your wife can't create a baby for you, get, get someone else, uh, because it's right in the Bible. The Bible says you can do that. Um, and I'll tell you, I actually thought that this this moment with everybody standing around was when the the the, the attempted knocking up was going to happen. Yeah, I kind of thought that too. I was like, oh, okay, so like everybody has to be there. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's all just like it's all just and again, like the, the the section is called household, and I thought that that was part of it. That you know, yeah. Maybe it's to make sure that, because again, I, I feel like there would be certain rules around this sort of thing that like, ideally the, the commander is not supposed to enjoy it. It's simply supposed to be a mechanical process. Right. Mm-hmm. And so maybe you need to have those other eyes there to make sure that he's not enjoying it to make sure that he's not doing anything. He's not supposed to, but um, in fact, Thankfully, it is not quite that. It is a little bit weird where um, of Fred is kind of lying back on the bed in the arms of Serena, the commander's the wife, yeah. wife, Serena, um, while the commander uh, fucks her. And, you know, that that's exactly the way it's described in the book. It's described as fucking. So, guys, don't give us <laughs> shit for using that word here. I know we try to be a G-rated podcast most of the time, no, we but uh, do we? <laughs> but uh, we need to we need to say fuck here because it's in the book. Uh, and yeah, no, that <laughs> oh, was that God. was the, that was a joke. <laughs> <Not a G-rated laughs> podcast at all. But I just just try to picture that that situation of like just sort of lying back, being held by this wife of the man that's fucking you. Your hope, you know, everybody's hoping that he'll you'll get pregnant, but also you know that she is resenting you for being in this position. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, when they're done, um, she mentions that she's supposed to like stay like curled in a ball or something for 10 minutes afterwards in order to increase the likelihood of, of getting pregnant. But Serena is just like, get out. Yeah. And also like um, during, like it's supposed to be, She's in Serena's arms so that they are of one flesh, I think is how it was described in the book. But Serena is like digging her nails and yeah, her rings yeah. into of Fred's hands. And- That's taking the one flesh thing a little too far. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to actually get physically under my flesh. But like I, that just that just shows a level of uncomfortable that that the Serena has the yeah. situation right yeah totally um and then after that happens we get what is maybe and maybe this is only strikes me this way because this is where we cut off the reading but mm-hmm. kind of the one of the most intriguing moments of the book so far um alfred sort of gets up in the middle of the night just wanting to 
act out against the commander, and she decides she was going to like go out into the house and steal something. I think it was it at the commander. Or was it more at the commander's wife? Well, I think it was or just at, the whole thing. Yeah, it's really I think the whole thing. It's yeah. the situation. It's the the family that's that sh- that she's stuck being a part of. It's, yeah, if she it's, can yeah, steal one little thing and get that, like, have a, a little bit of power over them. Exactly. It comes that back down to like this is this is that little bit of power that I can have. I can take this thing. They'll never know, and it will. It's it's insignificant, but it's meaningful to me. Mm-hmm. And when she sneaks out, she runs into Nick. And there is this kind of moment between them. I don't remember if they did they kiss or. I thought they did, but then the rest of the interaction kind of made it seem like they didn't. Yeah. Because um, so- it did say like our lips met. But, yeah, I was a little confused by the time I finished that section. So, but either way, whether they kissed or not, like it was, it definitely sold that kind of intense passion between them as a contrast to the kind of mechanical fucking mm-hmm. that was going on just earlier in the chapter. Here, of Fred is encountering somebody that she legitimately wants, is physically attracted to mm-hmm. doesn't go anywhere then still saying it will calling that um but at the end of it nick says he wants to see you and then tomorrow now of fred well she asked nick she's like what are you doing here because nick's not supposed to be walking around either no exactly right? and she's like well nick what are you like what are you doing here then yeah he's like yeah he wants to see it so do you you not think it's the commander i don't oh well that's intriguing i just assumed the commander i was like oh okay see and to me and again i could be wrong but there's there's two reasons i don't think it's the commander one is that we're not it does. It's not confirmed in this that it is. So there is mm-hmm. that room to question, and just from a perspective as a writer, I feel like that's something I would do if I wanted to make you think one thing but actually deliver another. The other reason is that he's the fucking commander. If he wants to see her, he should be able to just go see her. Although, again, that might play into the rules of engagement in this world. Well, and. You remember that scene where she well, calls exactly. the room that's hers, the and then and yeah, because he, he was outside of it, and that's improper, and that doesn't happen. So and then he and then maybe. and then he starts walking towards her, and she's like, "He's not supposed to do that." Yeah. Right. Yeah. So maybe it is. Maybe it is the commander. I mean, I'm 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 taking my going on a limb here, making my vote. That's, I don't think it is. Okay. But. That's intriguing because, like I said, I just. I mean, out of all the people that would want to see her and would have the ability to say, hey, Nick, go tell her I want to see her. Yeah. The commander. Right? But yeah. It also feels like this is a, a perfect time in the story to introduce a new character. You know what? You're swaying me again. Well, no, no. I, it's better <laughs> if we have two different op- opinions here because then we can go into the next section and find out who was right. I think it's not, it's not even going to be a, a man. Well, I think he said he wants <laughs> no. to see you. So 
<laughs> I know, just being an asshole. And I don't think there's a lot of transgender people in the... Uh, in no, the because somebody actually got hung for, what was it, gender... Uh, oh, well, I don't remember. Yeah, yeah, there was a term for it. Gender treason or gender treachery yeah. or something like that. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that uh, that brings us to the end. And uh, it's uh, as you as you talk about gender treason and gender treachery, it just again um, reminds me of how fascinating I am finding this book now that I finally uh, have gotten around to reading it. This is something I've meant to read for years, just knowing sort of its pedigree and uh, and how you know the awards it's won, as well as the controversy around it. As I've probably mentioned before, I am drawn to controversial subjects and and products. So uh, I'm a little ashamed that it's taken me this long to finally get around to reading this. Um, but I've been really uh, enjoying it so far. I know you haven't quite matched my levels of enjoyment, but um, I hope, hope you're at least enjoying it enough that you don't think the next you know, two weeks will be too painful. No, no, no. Like, like the last, I'd say, seven chapters just kind of flew by. Like, I just, I was like, oh, oh, damn, okay. Damn, yeah. Bam. So. And they fly by really well, too, because of the length of them. Like, when you're only reading, like, a five-page chapter, you go boom, 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 and then be like, oh, I can do one more. Yeah. Um, And I think what we found is that there's been a shift. The early chapters had way more, like, dense dumps of world building uh, with very little happening. And in sort of the last half of the chapters we've read, it's kind of reversed because we're now in that world. We don't need to get so much world building done and the actual events that are taking place can breathe a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And I think that makes for better reading as well. Uh, You know what? I might honestly just uh, reread like quickly what I've read so far and just try to get it, get it in a different headspace. Though while we're here, um, if people are wanting to read along with us, uh, we did cover chapters one through 17 here in the next episode. Uh, We will be talking about chapters 18 through 30. That will take us through part seven night, part eight birthday, part nine, also night, Part 10, Soul Scrolls, and Part 11 called, you guessed it, Night. That's uh, that's next uh, next week. All right, so let's wrap this up. Um, thanks for listening. Uh, we have a Discord now, if you want to come and visit us on Discord. We are at discord.com forward slash blah, 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 media. That's B-L-A-H, 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 media. That is sort of an umbrella site to cover both this podcast and the podcast that I'm doing with Carlos Sia called Half Cut Conspiracies, where we have a few too many drinks and talk about uh, the crazy world of conspiracy theories. Uh, You can toss some money our way at uh, Patreon. Did I say Patreon or did I say Discord? I guess I were at Discord. I meant Patreon. Right. You, you can We're find us on Discord. <laughs> you can. It's challenging to find us on Discord. You have to go to our Facebook page. Um, at Patreon, we are blah, 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 media. And um, 
yeah, if you like what we're doing, uh, you can you can throw us two bucks a month, five bucks a month. Help us pay our server costs. Help us, uh, you know, buy a coffee for when we're editing or buy a drink for when we were recording. Um, and if you don't want to do that, that's okay too. It's it's your money. It's a it's a difficult time in the COVID nineteen world, and every penny counts. So maybe keep those dollars if you don't have them to spare. It's all good. Um, any final thoughts before we uh, sign off? Yeah, I just if if the if the rest of the book is going to continue on like these last seven chapters did, I think I'm really going to like this book. If we get into like maybe a bit more like I don't know, I think it's just me. I don't think it's the book. I think it was just. <laughs> It's not just, you, Margaret so, Atwood. It's me. Something, yeah, something. I don't know if it was like I, I started reading it in a bad mind frame, or oh, if yeah, like yeah. something just kind of stood out to me right at the very beginning, and it just like it was like a thorn in my side, and I, I couldn't pull it. No, out. I, I definitely agree. Agree that it's you. Yeah, no. Time with <laughs> yeah, the book. It's no. it's all you, man. Absolutely, absolutely. But uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of things I, I, I fucked up with my notes. <laughs> I thought I was taking notes. I thought I was taking like pieces of the book and saving oh, them, but yeah, I wasn't. Yeah. There was so much like just little pieces of language that I wanted to bring up that, that just helped, uh, kind of bring everything forward. Um, and like, and you, you mentioned that too. She's so great at that. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. I think I, I think I downplayed my enjoyment on this episode. So yeah, looking forward to the next one. Excellent. Um, well, until next time then, uh, I'm Todd Sullivan. I'm Warren Barter. Uh, this has been when bad things happen to good people. Go read a fucking book. <laughs> <laughs>